0: I live by paradox, and I think that's something that we have to adopt as a society, which means what? I can be grieving and I can still be inspired. I can be grieving and I can still be creative. I don't allow one experience to dictate the entirety of this complex being that I am. It's like you're putting one word to describe a complex, paradoxical human being. It doesn't make sense. So grief really calls you to see that. I think our society doesn't have time for grief, you know? Like your mother die, your partner dies, or your kid dies, whatever, and you're thrown back at work right away, you know? Literally work, like it just life continues? No, like literally your corporate job will require you to be back at work on Monday. You know. you know, I just,
1: I was just, uh, Amber from the grief gang podcast. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She just posted something today about that, about discussing that specific topic about trying to get more time for people that are grieving and, the, and that leave after work, because that is a discussion. Who else was I talking about? I talk about this too much, I guess. There was another discussion about that, how just life just, there's nothing stops. Yeah. Nothing yeah. stops. It just literally keeps going. So no matter who you lost or what, you still have shit to deal with, whether it's, cleaning out the house of that person is like little details of grief that I don't think are mentioned even as much as like the grief process as a whole. We talk about mental health and emotionally, yeah. which is obviously a massive part of it and important, yeah. but there are those logistical details after losing someone that
0: makes it almost harder. Insane. Insane. And just not having the time to to be with that. And yeah, I think... I think we're death phobic and we're grief phobic. Our, our society just doesn't really know how to talk about, it and we we go to school to learn, you know, things that we don't need to learn. When we should be talking about death in school, we should be talking about our mortality. We should be talking about our the fragility of being human and the preciousness of being human, and really the inevitable events that we're all invited to: our death. You know, preparation for that So many people die with so many loose ends Like, n- there's so many things that People who are even, you know, older Are not even preparing They're not even preparing There's so much, so much preparation and I noticed with my mom's death It was just like this enormous expense thank god i'm in a privileged position now to be able to like afford a funeral and afford all the ins and outs of, to make it beautiful but i can only imagine when you are in a struggle bus and you don't even have capacity to make your ends meet and a loved one dies and you 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 can't afford to to do something beautiful for them you know our society doesn't it doesn't create the systems for us to to die well you know, and it's it's really alarming. So there's layers that I have been uh, kind of shoved into to learning, but also a couple years ago, I actually started to study um, the the death process through my lineage. So it's a very Buddhist approach to the death process, which calls for us to be awake during our death. And in my mom's death, she was in an induced coma which is a hard conversation that I've had to have with my brother and my father because they, with the doctor, they made that decision for her. And through the lineage, what we're asked to do is to not induce a coma so they could be awake even through the, the pain and the despair and the discomfort that's happening at the last few moments, you know, so they can actually hear the prayers. Because within the lineage, if they hear a, a certain set of prayers just before they take their last breath, we're creating the cause and conditions for them to actually have a better rebirth. You know, in, in a Judeo-Christian kind of um, colloquial understanding would be for them to like go to heaven per se. But for us in the Buddhist lineage, we believe that they, after 49 days, they are reincarnated. They have another life that they will be living out and processing through the things that they didn't get to finish in this life. So I'm doing these prayers and the nurses are really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable, you know. One of the reasons why I feel called to like speak to you and other grief um, people in the space is because we need to normalize humanizing death and open up the space for people to. Do their ritual practices in that space? You know, the de- the the body has to be ushered out of the hospital within a certain a certain time frame. There's no time for ritual. There's no time for us to even process or be with what just happened as it's happening. We're kind of shoved from one thing to the next. The doctors and the medical system has a, they have a checklist of things that they have to do as soon as the body is pronounced dead. And I noticed how inhumane that was for the family members and how traumatizing that was for me to be sobbing on my knees and still having to participate and do my best effort in that ritual of passage that I had taken a vow from a lineage holder years ago and not be able to do it comfortably because the nurses are so uncomfortable and they have a schedule. Are you freaking kidding me that there's a schedule? Like that was so mind blowing to me. And that really catapulted me into doing this, you know, training that I'm doing now, which is clinical pastoral education at Cedar Sinai. Um, and it's where I get to offer spiritual care for, uh, for patients, which is, it just started. I just saw my first patient yesterday. Yes. Thank you. And uh, thank you and like, what the fuck am I doing? It's terrifying, but also so exciting to really test my material and really emphasize the fact that we don't know what to say and words don't matter. It's like the quality of your presence is what matters when someone is dying. So there's a lot to unpack here because in at Cedar sinai they have, which is, you know, known to be the celebrity hospital across the world. It's the second best hospital in the United States. And I chose it intentionally because if they are the best, let's see what they're doing. You know, let's learn from the best and then... After I left my first day at the hospital, I drove to an ICU to see my friend's husband, who is in a critical uh, state, and arriving at that hospital and seeing that there's no chaplains, there's no spiritual care team, it's really alarming how... Privilege does create space for people to actually train an entire staff, for the chaplains, the spiritual care team to be part of the medical team. It's amazing how when I'm charting the patients, my notes are within the medical team, you know? It's mind blowing that we have this. And thank goodness for this amazing hospital that's doing this transformative work. However, you look at vast majority of the hospitals in the United States, which is supposed to be the nation that has it all fucking together. Look in Brazil, the trauma that, w- that happened not only when my mom died, but the aftermath of her death and having no one there to be with us or to, to just say to the nurses, give them the space they need. This ritual passage requires time. Get the fuck out of the way. You know, there was none of that. There's none of that because you are, because she died in the ICU, you know, ICU doesn't have doors. It's a fucking curtain. So I'm doing these prayers and I'm sobbing. I'm wailing and trying to do these prayers. It isn't a dead fucking language, right? So it sounds fucking strange. I already present myself in a really expressive way. So that is already really, you know, alarming for people. So... Layers upon layers of the depth of the trauma that happened, not only when my mother died, but all the things that happened after the meth of that, where I am now putting the doctors and nurses on my altar. So I am not harboring anger, wanting them to suffer. I am now choosing to forgive them because they don't have the education that it takes to care for the dying, to care for the dead. And they don't have the trauma-informed language to care for the family members. They're treating us like it's too many people and get out of the way so I can move on to my next patient. So with the work at Cedar Sinai, with the training that I'm doing at Cedar Sinai, it's really mind-blowing to see that there are good fucking people doing really good work in traumatizing critical crisis places, but there's not enough, you know, there's not enough people. It's a thousand beds and there is, you know, um, the training started and there's 19 of us, you know, there's so much. To it. It's so interesting that you're specifically talking about this. And again, even when
1: I met you, I... It's a free flowing conversation, so I love that you went there and thank you for sharing all that. I want to unpack exactly, you know, maybe your curriculum, if you will, and what your what your plan is with that. That's interesting to me. But also, is interesting is the timing because I literally recorded a podcast yesterday with a, two amazing hospice nurses, and we had a dynamic of a discussion about how their job specifically. You know, they have a specific job, just like any job has specific duties. But in in order for them to to, to touch their patients emotionally, it's It's probably hard to avoid that, but it's also not part of their job. So it did make me start thinking literally yesterday into today, ironically, about that aspect of how you'd think someone else would kind of swoop right in and take over that next responsibility, which is after the death. And then the the hospital does look at it as numbers, their schedules. And that's frustrating for the families that just lost someone. But if I'm looking at it from, you know, two sides of the coin, the hospital does have a very rigid rigid schedule. So to bring someone in like you or X, Y, Z or other facets of what you're looking to accomplish is vital because it is part of that dying process. And it's not just for the person dying. It's for the families and the people going through that process and to – have a smooth experience is so important because if you don't have, if that is a traumatic experience, losing someone in general. So if you have a transition period like that, that just adds to the trauma. So I've, it's amazing to hear that you're taking part in this. I have no idea until what, five minutes ago. <laughs> so yeah. I, I want to, there's a lot to unpack here. This is exciting. So you
0: lost your mom six months ago. Mm-hmm. December which is, 25th, 2022.
1: And this is August 31st, 2023. So that's a very short period period. So prior to you losing your mother, was this on the forefront of your mind, this discussion of death and taking leaps like this?
0: I would always speak about me wanting to live a very full life and share with my family and my community and my students about the the mortality um, consciousness that I have, that I speak about it every single morning when I wake up. Um, But I think we're always in a state of denial when we have a loved one that's sick and that's been sick for years. We keep trying new ways. You know, there's a part of me in, the, in my doctrine, in my lineage, that we, it is about living in a state of letting go, holding on to nothing because there's nothing to hold on to, period. And then there's another part of me that's my mother. It's my mother, you know? It's my mother, She and she was a special mom, and I can't not acknowledge that. She was a special mom. She was what, you know, I think growing up, you would sort of name her as smothering or helicopter mom. And that is just languaging of people who didn't have the mom that I had. My mom was a mother that was there. 24-7, 24 365, she made her life about us. You know, she moved to America in her late 30s to work as a house cleaner, you know, to really sacrifice her body and be around very, very hard people and doing very hard things to make sure that we had a better life. She flew to another country And lived undocumented until we were all documented to make sure that we could have a good life. She made her life about us, you know, and that's really eye opening in when I'm talking about I didn't want my mom to die. So the conversation was never like, okay, we should be coming around the table and talking about, "Hey, mom may die." That part of it was complete denial because of how good of a mom she was and how much she was the queen of our of our kingdom. She was the the head of it. She was the one that we called when things were good, when things were bad. She was the one that offered us the the, perse- the perspective that always Helped us see ourselves in the world in a new way. You know, she was always that person. So, no, we didn't have any preparation. No, there was no talk about death. And I, in the nature of my work, it's so fulfilling to help people. So I quickly became a workaholic, and and that workaholism it's so beneficial. So it's, it's helpful for people. And it also, you know, courses through me, the neurochemistry of of help, which is like the greatest high you can have is by helping someone else. So I just worked really hard. And I made a bunch of money, and I was able to help her go through treatments that most people don't even have access to. A, A week after she died a week, yeah, December 25th, on the beginning of January, she was supposed to be going to Switzerland to this like, you know, legendary cancer uh, treatment center where we were hoping for the miracle, you know, but it didn't happen. You know, it just didn't happen. So there was no preparation there, you know, and to say that now that I'm so invested in creating safe environments for people to talk about their own death and be awake to the fact that their loved ones who are uh, sick may die. trying to find the, the, the sweetness and kindness in that language to educate people about this. Um, it's still extremely difficult because we don't want to let go of the ones that we truly love and the ones who love us in ways that they you know that we don't even deserve per se, right? So, so
1: with your lineage you talk about Buddhism. Yeah. There is that th- the the belief of you should let go because and not be attached, correct? Because we never we never truly have something. Yeah. So how what is the process? Is there a process of with your lineage that teaches how to let go or is it just something you're supposed to just figure out?
0: That's a really good question. You know what I've been What I'm training uh, people in right now is when we learn to let go of our feelings as they visit our bodies, the simplicity of like you got struck with sadness, not in regards to death, not in regards to traumatic events. I'm talking about the simple little day-to-day anger, the simple day-to-day rejection, the simple day-to-day unmet need that strikes your body with feelings, emotions, What I'm training people with now is educating them in the simplicity of learning to let go of those feelings as they happen as a way for you to learn to let go of things out there. When you master the letting go process in here, you are able to dance the dance of letting go out there. So it's not that there is... A specific piece of canonical text or literature that can offer us the, the ins and outs. It's very nuanced and it's very, you know, there is not a, a very, it's not simple because the connection that we have with the, with the living in our lives is every connection is different. So it, you, you will let go in a different way. You know, the letting go process would be different. But if you are able to somatically bring your awareness to the place in your body where the feeling is alive when it calls for you and not distract yourself by going to your phone, having another cup of coffee, talking about it, you know, doing any of the, the things that we do to distract ourselves from feeling, if we're able to process the feelings as they come then we actually have just a little foundation to how to let go of all things in our lives, including the death of, our, of a mother.
1: And as I mentioned prior, I think you know these conversations, those modalities of working through X, Y, Z, if it's just a standard emotion, they all kind of, it all works together, whether it's grief, heartbreak, this, that, terrible day, it all kind of works together. And I feel like the letting go process, because I've always questioned myself, like I've read books about it, literally called Letting Go, or The Untethered Soul, whatever the hell it may be. And it always confused me. like the i feel like every time i read something about letting go it's never a or it's rarely or i can't think of one that is do this do that do this do that it's rarely that so i'm resonating with what you said and correct me if i'm misunderstanding is it is a unique experience to yourself so when P, I, I, it's a question again how do i let go it's it's like you can't give an exact answer so tell me if i'm on the right path mm-hmm. we have a quick therapy session <laughs> um when I think of letting go is if I feel an emotion, I feel like I, I'm getting better at doing what you're doing, where, I'm, where you're explaining with recognizing that emotion. And then I feel like I have an internal dialogue within myself of questions that are slowly getting to do. So I'll ask the question, okay, what am I feeling? And I'll answer that myself. Then why am I feeling that? I'm feeling that because of this. Okay, how? and start asking myself questions and working it out. And the more I have those questions and going step by step, I feel this because of that. Okay, and then I try to flip the perspective of why I feel that. And then slowly it feels like a balloon is being deflated. And then eventually I get to a point where I'm like, oh, I actually feel better. And I feel like that's my process of letting go. Am I a lunatic for thinking that?
0: No, I mean, look, whatever works for you works. And the the Buddhist understanding, and this is how I've metabolized the path, right? So it's not word by word from a canonical text or a scripture or a piece of literature per se. And this is what I train people in the somatic activated healing method is based on the simple teaching from Pema Chodron, which is a, she's a legendary Buddhist teacher. She says for us to drop the stories and be with the feelings. So every feeling that strikes our body, that visits our body comes with an entire narrative and engaging with the narrative and talking back to the narrative and having a dialogue with the narrative might bring about soothing effect in the moment but it won't create a stabilized embody change of perspective because you can't think your way out of your suffering you so, can't talk so your way <laughs> <laughs> well i would say if you were my student i would say yes okay. but for the for the context of the conversation i would say work with what you got but in this in Our approach, it's when the feelings come, not asking why do I feel how I feel, because why only perpetuates more of of the intellect. Mm -hmm. And feelings are happening in the body, so we have to bring our attention into the body and not ask why. Because if you ask why, you're going to find an answer, and then that answer is going to lead to another, and another, and another, and another. There's always going to be something or someone to blame. But within this somatic philosophy that I'm co-creating, metabolizing from the ancient scriptures of Buddhism, it's really never about like blaming the world for what's going on in here. It's the knowing that how I relate to the world, it's not something that someone put inside of me. Those feelings have been inside of me. And because in Buddhism you have past lives, it gives you the opportunity to, you know, air quotes here, to put the blame on your past lives, you know, or look to them. But we don't go to the fact that like, I feel this way because mommy and daddy did this exact thing or that thing happened because of this. Look how often our emotions are out of context. How often we feel extreme emotions, big textured emotions that are not They don't relate to the simplicity of our cappuccino not being uh, hot enough or not having enough foam or our Uber driver talking a foreign language when you just want peace or our partner not saying hello or good night and specifically that we want and the dragon unearths, you know? So it's the work is about not engaging with the stories but being with the feelings in the body as they visit your bodies without pathologizing, without interpreting them as this or that, good or bad, adding extra meaning. It's can I be with the feeling and be with it long enough so it experiences its natural cycle of a couple minutes in the body. What perpetuates the feeling is the story we tell ourselves about the feeling. And we are thinking our feelings. And this is what perpetuates a, a state of being inflamed for for longer than it, than it needs. Am I
1: making sense? No, you make perfect sense. And again, I'm, to make this, to re, I'm absorbing what you're saying and trying to relate it to my own experience because it does make sense because some emotional stuff that I'd gone through the last year, it was doing what I just said, re, almost replaying it. And then almost. I think what you were saying is when I start <laughs> telling that story, it it kind of grows other similar, perhaps negative thoughts that continue to fester. But then when I found more healing, All simultaneously, I feel like I'm not one that runs away from it. It's just I try to let myself feel it. But I maybe now thinking about it, I just start to feel better once I stopped having that conversation and just sat in it. Mm -hmm. And just kind of let it linger or let it be there however long it may have been. I don't know how long it was. But then I just sat in it and didn't distract myself, didn't turn on the TV, didn't go do this or that, or flip my phone. It was just literally sitting in it. Yeah. And, I th- I've, and I've always been able to say that ironically too, so I'm almost contradicting myself when it talks to grief. It's like I, I always say you, you have to allow yourself to feel. And good thing I didn't say any more about having that conversation because that makes sense to me. <laughs> but again, do whatever works for you. Yeah. But it, that that really hits home with me personally. I, I don't, I'm sure others are going to relate to that, but to me, my, mm-hmm.
0: my experience,
1: that makes a shit ton mm-hmm. of sense.
0: Yeah, because... When we're able to feel a feeling in a present moment and we're able to notice, okay, these feelings have these memories entangled with it. So if I'm going to process a feeling... I'm letting go of the emotional charge that's associated with that memory, and then that memory no longer flares us up, no longer intoxicates us, no longer clutters our perspective, no longer spills out hate from our mind, from our words, no longer, you know, um, makes our actions selfish. If you're able to be with the feeling in the body as it visits you. And you're able to notice, okay, these are the big stories that are associated with it. These are the big memories that are associated with it. And I'm able to be like, okay, big story, big feeling. Let me be with the feeling in the body as it visits me. And then you're able to sit in it. You know, in our work, we are trained to bring our awareness to the place in the body where you feel the feeling. A lot of people are so... Uh, desensitized and so frozen that they can't even tell you where they feel the feelings. You know, so that's why we dance and we meditate and we do a variety of different things to kind of uh, thaw you out, to kind of defrost you so you can start to feel. And then you go to that place in your body where you feel the feeling. And it's a simple practice of just observing it with your mind's eye. And anything that's witnessed under the light of awareness will naturally change. So it's about just witnessing the impermanence of feelings, not holding on to a good feeling or rejecting an unpleasant feeling. And the biggest part of the process is knowing that the more you engage with the stories associated with the feelings, the more you've lost the plot. The more you're not in the present moment, the more you are, you know, uh, addressing the fire with gasoline, not with water, You know, so it's it's quite a simple process, but it's very hard to do because we're so trained to run away from discomfort. Our societies are entirely built on how can I quickly distract myself from feeling unpleasant. Look at the world we're in now. We're watching TV with our phone in our hands. We're texting someone while we're talking to somebody else on our phone. We are listening to a podcast while we're driving. We are listening to a podcast while walking our dogs and, and texting a friend. We are a society built on multitasking. And multitasking is a symptom of, of, of unprocessed emotional baggage. We're unwilling to be here now because if we're here now, we're going to be called into feeling. But what if feelings were not good or bad? They're just visitors calling you into the present moment. You know, so the way to process the past in a way that doesn't linger and, and propels you to do things you don't want to do, that you're not proud of or that you regret later, is when the big memory surfaces in your mind. Bring your awareness to the body and be where the feeling is offer awareness to that place in the body and a couple words that that may be helpful to say to that feeling with your inner dialogue with your inner vocabulary with your inner words is hello friend welcome thank you for visiting me and you may even go as far as saying i love you this is what's helped me tremendously to navigate the waves of the disorienting grief that I'm in. How can I still teach and show up on all the things that I have, you know, while I'm in despair? It's welcoming it in some sense. 100%. It's welcoming.
1: I mean, I, I, I hear that. Suffering suffer is suffering. Suffer, life, is su- life is suffering. And in the suffering, you learn is when you're supposed to grow. You're growing in the discomfort it's much easier said than done because when you're in the sh- in the shit, you just want to get out of the shit. Yeah. But in order to get out of the shit, you got to be in the shit. <laughs> I, don't, uh-huh. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's just, it's... it's it it's, makes
0: complete sense, honey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I should have started the episode like this, but we got right into it, which I love. For, in case you're tapping into a new audience right now, um, I know we're, kinda, we're going backwards now and I think people got a great understanding of who you are. Would you... And I want to go back again to the work you're doing in the hospital. Yeah. To segue to that work in the hospital explain your work a little more thoroughly. I know we kind of got into it, but for people that that aren't familiar with you, tell, tell
0: them right now about yourself a little bit and the work you currently do. So the work that I do... I don't even know how to put into words really. <laughs> it's, to, to dance. It, it, it's a variety of different things, you know? Um, I actually, now one of the titles is filmmaker. And we can even say award winning filmmaker because the, the little short film I did about grief, touching the ungrieved grief, just won two awards. And we are premiering it at the LA Film Festival, um, which is so insane that I just made that as a somatic. Process, you know, as a somatic way of of touching the the parts of the grief that I was unwilling to look at, and we created this somatic art film to for me to process. But now, everyone that watches it is having these transformative experiences, you know. And it's only eight minutes, so the work that I'm doing it it really is any way that the muse calls me to work, any ways that the you know, the the guiding force of inspiration propels me to do. On a more educational uh, perspective, I do have a, a philosophy that we have co-created, uh, which is called somatic activated healing that combines five different modalities, which is 20 somatic postures that are connected to the 20 most prevalent emotions that most people experience and each of these emotions have a specific somatic postures that we have created. These postures are sigils, they're symbols, they are ways for us to create an energetic flow in a non-invasive way that enters the body and process the emotional baggage of the past without us having to revisit the past. I think there's a lot of talk about you have to remember your trauma in order for us to heal and I'm a big proponent to saying, no, you don't. You don't have to remember what happened to you in order for you to hear. Just see how you feel right now. If you're in a perpetual state of of anxiety, depression, addiction, and I can speak from personal experience about all of these things because that was who I was before I understood the impact of not processing the past, of allowing the emotional baggage of the past to linger in my body. So in the somatic uh, activated healing, we have somatic postures. We have the ecstatic dance which is a, a practice of helping people enter a state of trance where the past is dancing them, where you give the directions to the mind for the body to move in a really unhinged, monster-like, wild-like, freak-like way. And the, the directions that you're offering to yourself in that moment is for the past to dance itself out of your body, that this is a safe space for the body to dance the past out of your body. So the dance starts really, really strange, you know, and we create a very specific sonic journey for people that it may feel like you're dancing in a basement in Berlin and you should be high on ketamine for that in order for you to experience that. But you don't, you know, I'm I'm sober and we, we teach, you know, uh, lucidity and awakefulness through it. And there's a couple other components to it, which is the practice of meditation. And it's a simple two practice of shamatha and vipassana. Shamatha is the concentration practice. And then vipassana is the observation practice. So in order for you to observe the feelings in your body without your biases, without your prejudice, without the past giving meaning to the feelings in the present, you have to concentrate your mind. So you concentrate, then you are able to observe. And then we have breath work, and then we have affirmations. So this is a little two-minute explanation of what the method is about. So the way it looks like, it looks like a spiritual workout. It looks like a big, fun, dance party. But what's happening inside, uh, it's pretty profound. And it's Amazing to see that the work is helping so many people. And a comment that I get often, it's five years of therapy in an hour. And um, it's not that I, that I have a magic sauce. It's not that I'm a miracle worker by no means. It's just we're talking about simplifying the work and just being in the present moment where you can feel the feelings, you know?
1: And so it's, it's literally right in line with everything you just told me about, you know, getting too into the story. And that's what I was thinking of what you're saying is you can heal your past without visiting your past by not telling the story.
0: And Beautiful. You should quote yourself. That's beautiful. <laughs> did, I not, did I just not say what you said? You said it, you said it in a simple way. <laughs> it
1: was like two minutes and two sentences. <laughs> well done, honey. Now I'm, li- no, I'm listening. This is, this, is, this is, I mean... This I don't is good. Know. I don't, you're good. Everyone else is listening too, but this is right on. I love this. This is great. This is fantastic. Um, I mean, I, I, I love your... Modalities. I love the way you're looking at things, and I like the idea of simplifying things. Because as complicated as life can be, without having done your work in person or anything, it, I really, I've always believed simple ways are usually always the answer. Like it's like the simple things in life. It's always the 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 ideas that seem too simple to be possible. Like I came up with that event. It's like the simple things in life. So to dumb down that makes sense. Because you think about it, humans have been around for how many years. They didn't have Google. Mm-hmm. They didn't have all these self-help books. Mm-hmm. And it's either they were – I doubt everyone was so miserable. And you go to simple cultures around the world. Like there's a new series I just started Didn't get into it to speak about. It. It's called Blue Zones. It's guys looking into the, um, people that have lived to 100 years old in certain areas. I'm like, those people, most of those people from what I quickly looked at, they are not overwhelmed with all these little things. They're going back to the simple things in life, and they seem to be the happiest. So I'm just – just, that's how I'm relating your practice in – Mm-hmm. Dumbing it down mm-hmm. in a way that makes mm-hmm. sense to me without having experienced it yet. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that, and for everyone else that wants to get into the depth of it, you're gonna have to go work with this guy over here. Uh, but back again, um, I, we've covered a lot of ground, and you're probably gonna have to come back again because I haven't tapped in enough about your own personal grief story. Yeah, feel free to cut me off and share that if you'd like. But Please. I am interested in. What you're doing with Cedar Sinai in the hospital—is this all relating to what you just told me, or is it a totally different avenue no. of the specifically about you just lost someone, and is it related to the Buddhist culture, or is it an
0: overall process? Well, I am a, a chaplain intern, and the, the the faith that I represent is the Buddhists. We have a lot of uh, Jewish people. We have a lot of Christians. Many different sects of Christianity. Cedar Sunai has their first ever Muslim chaplain intern, which is so wild to me that it's 2023 and this is the first time we have someone um, stepping in from that faith and helping people. But the work at Cedars is not doing this. It's the byproduct of doing this that gives me the capacity to be there. My work is really silent. My work is very often nonverbal. My work is to arrive at, at these rooms and create a safe environment for people to unravel and reflect without having to say very much. And you know, in the teacher training that we do training people to be somatic-activated healers, a lot of it has to do with yes perform these postures in a really specific way. Yes, do the breath in a specific, do all these things in a very specific way. So much so that you can walk into a homeless shelter that you can, which is part of my offering, part of my, my, my daily, weekly schedule, or walk into the hospital or walk into a room where someone is in deep grief or in deep despair. And you don't have to say very much. You are so relaxed in your being that people feel safe enough to unravel. Your presence has the capacity to change the temperature of every room that you enter into. That is the barometer of a healer in my philosophy. And this is the work that we do at the hospital. It's it's very much... Very nonverbal. Can my presence communicate without words? You know, and regardless of people's beliefs, I think people
1: innately know that outside the hospital, of course. But that feeling that of com- comedy intuitively, when someone walks into a room, you just feel like that's a that en- energy. Whether you believe in it, like all that or not, doesn't matter. We've all experienced that in some capacity, so, yeah. And that's so contrasting and beautiful in the hospital. We were just talking about how the ICU. I just had an experience in the ICU, not personally with my my mother and witnessing the, even just the, the feeling of it. And, and to, no, I'm not, to no fault of the nurses, the nurses in hospital staff are amazing, but they're doing their job. And, and there is a separate entity in regards to what you're doing and what they have to do at the mm-hmm. hospital, let alone the fact they're shorthanded. But that idea of contrasting the innate nature and nerves that hospitals give off, and then that transition to what you're bringing in a calmness, it's so important. It's so important. Mm-hmm. It's so important. Again, my dad died in a much different aspect where I didn't have the, the hospital uh, idea. I've, I've been in hospitals and grandparents have passed and whatnot, but it's just uh, that transition point, like I said, is so important. And if you can have a smooth transition, my friend, my friend Jorge Perez, he's been on the podcast. He was explaining he lost his mother and had just a peaceful transition. And of course he was sad, but that peaceful transition was like almost uh, timely closure, like early timely closure. So that, that process
0: mm-hmm. that you're doing is so incredible. Mm-hmm. And props to Cedar sinai I guess, for Doing this, right? Really, we have to applaud them. And it's interesting because they are one of the biggest uh, funders for the homeless shelter that I volunteer at on Fridays, which is amazing, you know, that they are. Have this robust spiritual care team, and they're also helping to support uh, people who are unhoused. You know, in a neighborhood like Venice Beach, where all the, you know, vast majority of the of the 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 neighbors there are really wanting to eradicate the homeless. They they're not wanting to solve homelessness. They're not willing to donate, show up, serve, help in any way, shape, or form. They just want to not see unhoused people because it triggers their own. This comfort, it triggers their own insecurity, triggers their own confusion. So they rather not see the problem um, instead of trying to help the problem. And in California, we have 175,000 people who are unhoused. It's wild. It's insane. It
1: truly is wild. When you mention the number, it's absolutely—I see it every day, but it's wild. Yeah, yeah. It's literally a small country. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, before I get you out of here, though, I do want to ask you a personal question. You're six Please. months in. How are you feeling? Six Awful. Months in?
0: Awful. Yeah. I don't mean
1: to laugh. It's not funny. It's just yeah. your candidness. No, it's...
0: thank you. Um, it, it's, it's really, um, how can I say this? It's how am I doing? I'm okay. Cause I'm stable and I'm coherent and I have energy to, to come here, you know, and to do things and show up, but I'm not, it's, it's just sucks, you know, in all the ways possible, you know, like I said earlier on, it's like, I, I feel like I lost a a part of me. I feel like I don't have both legs to walk. I feel like I, you know, and and trying to make sense of it. And one big piece of the puzzle, it's people's uneducated attempt to be kind, where they say thoughts and prayers. Shut the fuck up with your thoughts and prayers. Like, come on, you know, like, I don't know if we can curse here. Oops. We're 40 minutes in. We okay. I think we between you and me, we
1: dropped 25 F bombs. So we, okay, good. it's all good
0: people. But I mean to say the very least, it's like we have to what I'm learning is how I how unwell I have been feeling through the grief. You know, I just want to name this so people can feel validated in their experience. The first three months after my mother uh, died, I didn't really have short-term memory. The trauma was so intense that I I really would forget what I had for breakfast an hour later, I forgot people's names that I just met. There was so much damage that had happened in my body from having been so chronically stressed that it's taking me a long time. It's taking me, you know, months to be able to unravel that. And I felt so inflamed that I couldn't get, I I couldn't really like get up. Going a walk, it felt like the hardest thing. My balance was off. Standing up felt like my body was like tilted, you know? And I mean, all the old habits wanted to to creep back in. And it was a real discipline to stay sober, real discipline to stay accountable to showing up every day to the mat, even though I didn't want to sit, even though I didn't want to go inside and be with the feelings. All I wanted to do was to eat them away, was to, you know, watch them away, to distract myself from it. So how am I doing? Um, I'm fine, and it's also awful. It's because it's I'm just picking myself back up. You know the the layers of how disorienting this year has been. It's it's insane. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, this is not advice because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But it's, you got to give yourself grace. It's been, uh, in general, no matter how the time period is. You know, everyone handles it differently. Even with you, with so much knowledge on the, the the you know the a process, like someone like you knows what to do, in my opinion, but then you have no idea what to do at the same time because once you get hit punched by Mike Tyson, it's like it's a whole different ball game than thinking about getting in the ring with him. So it's that's an incredible lesson in itself. Like you could like I feel like I'm equipped for a lot of things mentally. I feel like i, I I've experienced some things, but then when it happens, totally different. I can give advice to a friend that's going like did this, but when you're in it, yeah, totally different game. And I, I want to ask, because you mentioned it earlier, how you've been able to. Continue working and this or that. Uh, is there any correlation between your work and not allowing yourself to process it? Are you, sta-
0: are, you are you almost staying too busy during all this, or do you feel like you're you're go- you're going through that okay? Thank you for asking that, and and I just want to also name something. I feel like I had I had like been practicing and preparing for for that moment, but nothing could have prepared me for that. And I had a lot of confusion, so much confusion. And the confusion would, would lead to like disassociation, would lead to derealization, depersonalization. And thank God I have a great therapist who, wore, who wasn't pathologizing me, you know, was holding space for me to feel like my life wasn't real, feel like I wasn't real, feel like life was really dreamlike. If you have experienced depersonalization and derealization and your disassociation is very alive, It can feel like you are living inside of a glass, and you're watching life, and you just you're here, but you're so disconnected to life. So I just want to name all these things. This is really as I was driving here. If there was one thing I wanted to say, I'm glad you asked about the work and about the process of being with the feelings. But what I just shared right now is really all I wanted to say. It's that I have felt. Awful, and all the things that I named are just some of the the things that have come up for me. And how am I able to do it? I live by paradox. And I think that's something that we have to adopt as a society, which means what? I can be grieving and I can still be inspired, I can be grieving and I can still be creative. I don't allow one experience to dictate the entirety of this complex being that I am. It goes against so much of our society that says she's toxic, they're toxic. It's like you're putting one word to describe a complex, paradoxical human being. It doesn't make sense. So grief really calls you to see that, that there's no way that you can ever see anyone or life without a paradoxical lens that your perspective is not the only perspective.
1: I mean, that's, I'm not going to get political, but that, like, that is a whole, I think that is a whole challenge with our, the worldview in, in many ways outside of grief and whatnot, because people get identified by an ideology, one ideology that you might not agree with. And then, but, and that that doesn't, that's not the person. There's so much more. There's so many other facets. This person's amazing for XYZ just because they believe in XYZ does not mean that's who they are. And I love that paradoxical idea in regards to grief because, you know, one thing I've heard often when I talk to widows and whatnot, like, uh... Oh you just lost your husband it's grieving if it's been 1 year or 2 years you can't you can't be happy or something like that there's a guilt innately with that person like oh how can I even find joy in anything right now when i just lost my husband and therefore there's guilt because of that And like yes you can be grieving and you can be sad but you can still find joy in other little things even if it's temporary so that that that, that contrast there's different sides of the spectrum. I I think that's what makes it so hard and confusing because you're feeling one thing and then a different one. Is that okay? That's not okay. And this person said that. And I think it all comes back to what works for you and trusting yourself and giving yourself that grace. Mm -hmm. It's easy to be hard on yourself. Yeah. Again, you're only six months in. Yeah. And- I, there's not much I can say that's going to do anything except, again, I think what you've been doing is hold space and yeah. let, you, let you speak if you want to speak
0: or tell yeah. me if you want to tell me yeah. or just shut up if you want me to shut up. But I, I think – can I add something? Add anything. Thank you. I think one thing that I have seen through this process is we don't have a society or systems that allows us to fall apart, you have to be rigid. You have to pull up and show up and be okay. Look at the culture of hello, how are you? Good, good. Hello, how are you? Good. Everywhere, constantly, how many times a day you are masking what's happening inside. So, in order for me to fall apart, because there was a I entered the the third the the, the fourth month, and at the end of the third month, I started to be able to like go on walks and start exercising again and I was like you know kind of back feeling just a little bit more in my body I wasn't like hovering myself I was more in my body and I noticed that I started to, to be desensitized and being desensitized with the grief was questioning did my mom ever live did she love me? Did I love her? It was like kind of, it wasn't like fully delusional, but there was an aspect of like questioning the, 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 the depth of the connection. And I realized why that was happening was because I wasn't allowing myself to fall apart. So that's when I asked my dad to go on that 500-mile grief walk from France through Spain, it's known as El Camino de Santiago. And the entire purpose of those 32 days, those 500-mile walk that we did was to fall apart and not have to show up to anyone or anything, to not have anyone to respond to, to not have nothing around us besides our only job was to be with the grief and walk, walk the grief and fall apart as many times as it needed for us to really not turn the page, not create new meaning, but to just experience it fully. To allow the the cycle of the grief to come and go, and then come again and go again, and then come again and go again, and notice the the you know the texture of all the waves and the the, the color that it marks us. The the depth of our, our perception that it becomes stretched with every wave that, that, that surfaces in the body. So that, that, and I know I'm in a position of privilege to be able to take 32 days to just walk, but give yourself a freaking weekend. Give yourself a week. You know, tell your uncle, your friend, your whoever it is, hey, I need some time off. Can you spot me for an Airbnb in the desert for a week so I can just fall apart? Reach out for friends. Create a GoFund for you to fall apart. See how how that will show up, like how the world will show up for you. I need time to grieve. Can you, can you, can you, the community support me through this process? But we need to fall apart and not give a fuck. I think there's a, it's our sadness. We're so saturated by not feeling feelings when they come that we are like saturated that when someone feels deeply in front of you, it calls forth your own feelings that you haven't felt Or it triggers you because you don't want to go there. So we are in a society of like rejecting, neglecting anything that calls forth the feelings that we don't want to feel. And imagine if you are literally walking at Whole Foods in the afternoon. You see me getting my, you know, uh, walnut milk next to me in the fridge. And you see me wailing and sobbing. You can't handle it. You literally are like, oh my God, this person is fucking crazy. They're fully unhinged. Our society propels towards that, but take yourself out of society for a while. So then you can feel strong enough to cry at Whole Foods when you need to cry. You can feel strong enough to say, shut the fuck up. This is my process. Thank you very much. And I'm in it and I'm and I'm, I'm in it, you know, Mm -hmm. Allow yourself the grace to be in your process, but take yourself out of the system for a little while, if you can, you know, and walk the grief. I think walking the grief is very powerful. Dance the grief, paint the grief, you know, write the grief, but be with it in a concerted effort. I think a lot of people, when I, when the post of my dad's, uh, my dad and I's walk went, went viral, it became a portal for people to realize that they didn't grieve in the ways that they wanted to because they were shoved back into work. They were shoved back into life. They didn't take their parents' ashes to that place. It's still sitting on top of their fireplace seven years later. They didn't go to the mountain in wherever it was, like dad's dream was to hike that mountain. They didn't hike that mountain for them and drop the ashes there. They didn't do the thing. Birthdays go by where they are just another day. You know, like, get a picture. Light up a candle. Get the cake that mom liked. Sit down. Cry. Sing their favorite song. Like, don't lose touch. You know, because if you lose touch, you're not only losing touch with the dead and the loved one, but you're literally desensitizing yourself from connecting to life deeply. Remember what, what Zen teachers say, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So connect, connect to the dead in a beautiful way. And that requires you to bring back ritual. You know, Christmas will never be the same for me. I'm active right now, putting together a memorial for my mom. You know, getting a bunch of people together in a room to just share stories about her, you know, and and that's just what I'm gonna do year after year, and that's just what we need to do to honor the dead by living meaningful lives, you know.
1: That's the, I mean that was the perfect ending right there, living the meaningful lives. And sorry, when again, it goes back to it's hard to see that in the moment, but again, you're only six months and you're seeing that, but it's it, the, the process is so. Again, it goes back to it seems so complicated because I th- think it's more individual than complicated, but I think, again, if you could simplify the process by just acknowledging how you feel and sitting in that. Mm-hmm. But then the, you mentioned also earlier, it's, it's everyone has different resources, so it's hard to just stop life for a lot of people and not take that moment to separate yourself from the system because some people don't have the means to do that. They have no choice but to go back to work, even if work gave them off kind of thing. It's another whole other level to the shit.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the systems of oppression are, are very alive, and it's, it's keeping us um, discombobulated, you know. Discombobulated, man. <laughs> that's, <laughs> a, that's a nice way to say it, though. I'm not trying to really get—I mean, I'm, a lot of my work—people put me in a category of spirituality, but it's, it's essentially in social justice. This is really where we really get to talk about the real shit. Um, It's dismantling these systems that don't allow us to be humans, you know. They move us to perform outside of the cycles of nature, which we are nature. We're not meant to produce. We're not meant to to be in harvest season, 365, 24-7, you know. And when you experience a natural process of death, which all of us will, you know, um, and we don't have time to just be with it. It's it really is alarming, you know. I wish there, I wish I could. I wish I had a farm to just say, "Hey, someone died. Come fall apart here. Come take time to just fall apart. You're safe to fall apart here." So, you know, maybe the dead talks will will create a a, a fall apart farm at some point. You a know, place to go. yeah, a place to go to just fall apart safely to just be. You know, with the grief... Um, you got to fall apart to put yourself together. Say it, honey. Yeah. Yeah. That's the mic drop right there.
1: Jesus. <laughs> this is my, my dad. Sorry, I've been holding this. I, I always keep it next to my My dad's little bat. He had a kid. So I was just, I was just like, keep it in the room. Beautiful. Anyway, that's me. Thank you. Uh, I feel like I'm just saying this. I don't know. We could talk off the mic. You mic. Maybe you didn't like this experience, but I feel like I, I would love to have you back at some point and even cover much more because, again, you're so early in the process. Um, there's nothing I can do but just continue wishing you a a healing journey if there's anything ever I can do for you whatever that may be you gotta tell me what you want I don't wanna assume what you want I'll be there for you and hopefully this community and what you're doing is of some service to you in your healing journey because I know what you said is gonna help other people Maybe that's part of your journey in itself. Mm-hmm. Thank so if, you. Is there anything else you want to say before we get out of here? Plug yourself. Always, like I said this before. It's always the worst transition to be like plug yourself after this cup. But please um, share anything you want to say about yourself or anything we just talked about the the last few moments or yours.
0: I mean, what can I say? Peace out. Yeah, I big love to you all, and remember, it's painful to be human. You know, and that's okay. It's painful to be alive and that's okay. And create the opportunity to fall apart. That's really all I wanted to say. And I just all the hard things that I've gone through that may continue to happen psychologically, physiologically, I, I feel like, you know, know that if you're going through it, I've been there too. And there's there is a there is a it's not a light at the end of the tunnel, but there is a way. To start to pull ourselves back together, you know. So, yeah. I mean, that's all I got. Thank you. you thank there, you for having me. It was that wasn't that wasn't just all you got. There was
1: a lot in there, and there's, <laughs> we could go on for another nine hours, I think. So, thank uh, you. again, thank you for being here. I'm gonna. You look in the description, the show description, for more information on him, and uh, you can find all his work there and what you got going on. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to speak to you, for real.
0: Thank you very much. You're you're very good at what you do. Thank you. I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's working. Thank you. <laughs> Until next time, guys, another episode of Dead Talks. Peace out.